Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Alexi Horowitz. I am one of AIR's new voice scholars this year, and I am a news reporter intern at Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland. Um, and I'm here to introduce Laura Sullivan. Um, Laura began her career in public radio at NPR at the National Desk reporting crime and punishment stories, and she currently works at the investigations unit there. Um, since she began, she has accrued a truly dauntingly large list of awards, including three Peabody's and two DuPont awards, and she's also expanded on her vintage glass bottle collection and her knowledge of the Star Trek universe. So with that, please, uh, please help me in welcoming Laura Sullivan. Good morning. I'm so excited to be here this morning and, and talking to you guys about my favorite subject in the whole world, which is investigative reporting. Um, I think I could talk about this for hours. Um, I want to go, I have to, I have to say something kind of off script. I know we're going to talk about story structure, and we're going to talk about great radio moments, but there's been a lot of talk at the conference about uh, manufacturing sound and, and some of the places where that can really work and some of the, the great venues that you can put some of that sound in. I think that what I hear at the conference, at least, is that there's sort of a pendulum and there's places where, you know, it's really, you know, a must-have in stories. And I would like to say in this room, on this topic, we are all the way on the other side of the pendulum. And if you put manufactured sound even something like a helicopter, I, you know, I'm going to do, I want to do something in about a war. I'm going to put a helicopter sound, or I'm going to put gunshots in, or I want to put this in the story, and it is not authentic sound that you collected from the research that you did for your project. You are holding yourself out for a world of pain that, you, and you just do not, you don't want to go down that road. Um, and I say that not because. Not because that kind of sound uh, might not sound awesome or for some ethical reason or because it's not authentic. I'm saying that because the world has changed for investigative journalists. And you will be held to the fire for every single line you put in that story. And what you do when you manufacture something in those stories is that you allow somebody to discredit the whole story because something you put in there is not authentic to the research. It's not real. And if that's not real, what else in your story is real? So for me, uh, like last uh, week and a half ago, I did this story with, um, I know it's weird to put ProPublica's website up there. Um, <clears throat> I work at NPR. But um, I worked with Justin Ellie and Jesse Eisinger on uh, uh, this Red Cross story. And a week and a half ago, um, <clears throat> the Red Cross uh, called me a, um, uh, I'm actually forgetting the, the word, not irresponsible do you remember? I can't even remember what they called me. It was like, uh, it's worse than that. I, I'm blocking it out because it was so painful. But it was like an irresponsible journalist who um, is only trying to further her own career. I can't believe I can't remember. I'm going to pull up their website. It's right on their, it's right on their uh, PR page. It'll come to me sometime during the hour. I'll be like, oh, that's what they called me. Okay, so um, that I can handle because that is simply a personal attack. And once they're kind of going after you on a personal level, you know you're fine. Your story's fine. You're all good. Um, reprehensible. Sorry. Okay, so reprehensible. I heard that, and I was like, well, 
Okay, maybe. And then I heard uh, trying to further my own career. I was like, come on now. We work in public radio. You know, what are, you know, what are we, there's no gains here. There's no cash and prizes that we're trying to track down. This is public radio. So I was like, that's fine. But what they didn't say was an, uh, a reprehensible journalist trying to further her own career who made up some shit in her story. Because that will take you down. That calls into question your credibility of yourself and your story. So I just want to say, don't do it. Um, all right, so today we're going to talk about uh, some of these uh, investigative journalism stories. And I thought it would be interesting to take a look at what uh, the, you know, this is the print version of this story that we did last week. Um, I mean, look at this thing, right? Okay, so this is like 5,000 words online. You know, we're going down. You know, we're still going. We're going. We're going, I mean, look at this thing. Okay, and look, look, look where I am. Can you see where I am on the left-hand side? I mean, I'm not even halfway down here, and we're still, we got so much to do here. And this story really, you know, and then I, this is one of my favorite parts. Where is the little sound? We helped them with this. They actually started putting sound on their website. <laughs> um, so this story starts pretty typically, you know, with a print story where you have a big grand opening, you know, giant thing, storm hitting, big grand opening. And then anytime you see, you know, three words in a, in a period, you know, the nutcraft's coming next. So, so here we have the Red Cross botched key elements of its mission after Sandy and Isaac. And then we're going to back that up with a bunch of documents and statements. And then we're going to have a money quote, you know, empty trucks going around, 80 trucks sent around empty to, you know, make it look like they were doing work. All these trucks were at press conferences rather than helping people. All the kind of the juicy nuggets. And then you're going to have the Red Cross's response. That's crap. That, you know, we don't believe that. We did the best job we could, blah, blah, blah. And then we're going to be like, yeah, but your own documents say that multiple systems failed. And then right there. Then you start. Then you back all the way up to the beginning, you know, the modern-day Red Cross was created, right? You're just going to come all the way back. That, this is not going to work on the radio at all. I mean, this is like, this is a nightmare on the radio. I can't even read these sentences out loud. Um, so what we're going to figure out is how to take this kind of an investigation, which is like, you know, multiple documents, internal documents, and people who wouldn't go on the record at all. You know, I had, we had two top-level Red Cross officials who were on background, which means we can use their material, but we can't uh, use their names or cite them um, in here. So I, I, like, it's not even an issue of having tape. I can't even use their names. So how are we going to put that and turn that into... Um, a radio story. So one of the things that's most interesting about this for me is that one, that the you know this is our little website version, by the way. That's it. That's all you get. You get a little photo. You get a little this. Um, <laughs> that's all we did. Uh, this is the main guy. Uh, this guy down here. This was a huge scene for me, Lieutenant Matthew Tiedemann of Bergen County. You know he couldn't get any of the. Um, uh, he, they didn't, the Red Cross didn't show up for him, and he was the head of the emergency response center for Bergen County, largest county in New Jersey, and he had a contract with the Red Cross. They failed to show up, and so he's out there trying to open a shelter. So now he put out in his parking lot. I went out the day he was doing it, and he was loading these pods in a county parking lot full of shelter supplies and emergency supplies because he's like, basically, we can't count on the Red Cross. They're not coming. So this is like, this is your scene. This is your showing, not telling. This was like Two and a half minutes in my story. This guy doesn't even have a quote in the ProPublica story. So, um, 
It's very different. Same thing when we did a scene with two reverends out in a parking lot. I spent like two hours with them out there, and I was, you know, trying to get the traffic, and I had to, to figure out how to get them out of the wind, and I wanted them outside and all this stuff, and they were like, what do we need this? I'm like, oh, we need this. Um, so for me, this, um, it comes down to basically what are we talking about? When I first started out, the very first story that I attempted to do uh, on this was a story called uh, was a story about solitary confinement in the nation's prisons. This series is a train wreck. Um, this was the first time I was really like, I'm going to do an investigation. This was uh, uh, about you know the number of people in solitary confinement, and there were two things that make this an investigation rather than just explanatory or you know this exists. I call those stories this exists stories. Um, it's because these, if to make it an investigative story, it asks two questions all the time without fail. And if you haven't asked these two questions, your story is not investigative. Why is this happening and who is responsible? So anytime you take something like a whole bunch, you've, so you FOIA'd a bunch of documents from Health and Human Services and now they're sitting on your laptop. That's not an investigative story. That's just a whole lot of boring documents sitting on the laptop of your computer, the hard drive of your computer. Or you may also have gone out and you have talked to a whole bunch of people who told you really sad stories. You know, really things that you are like crying in that interview because this is so sad. Um, That's not an investigative story either. I call, actually like to call those stories, um, it sucks to be stories. You hear them a lot on the air. Um, you know, it sucks to be in prison. You know, it sucks to be poor. It sucks to be in a nursing home. And those stories can be powerful and they can be good and they can be, you could, you're, you could be totally into them when you're listening to them. A lot of times they can be over the top and schmaltzy and one-sided as well. But sometimes they can be done really well. Either way, that is not an investigative story either because it is not taking you to the next level, which is why is this happening and who is responsible? And the best of all investigative stories is going to bring that question, who is responsible, to the feet of somebody by the time you sign off. You are going to be saying, this is the system, this is the place, this is the person, this is the problem. This is where it's responsible. And I am going to sit down and I'm going to ask that person, why is this happening and how are you letting this happen and how have you failed and allowed this to happen? And you're going to allow the listener to have that cathartic moment of, okay, so that's why this is also screwed up. And, and it, allow, it brings this kind of the whole thing to a nice conclusion. So... Yeah, I didn't do that in this series at all. (laughs) Um, This series was a three-part series where I did this kind of classic thing that you hear on the air a lot where you have, um, you know, just a whole, like, you'll hear like a five-part series. But it doesn't all come together. It's like five sidebars. Uh, Solitary confinement. Okay, so we're going to do one story that's a tour of a prison. And then we're going to do another story that follows a guy who got out of prison. And then we're going to do another story that looks at, like, the state and its policies. And it's just like this kind of, you know, it's like nothing is bringing the whole thing together. And at the end of the week, the listeners, you know, 
you know, is saying, okay, I, I think I learned a little bit and that was kind of interesting, but what, what is the overall point? And you're saying to the listener, I don't know. I was hoping you would tell me, you know, I, I, I was, I don't have any idea what my general plan was for this whole thing. It was just a whole bunch of thought, stuff I thought was interesting as I went around and reported all this in cohesive things in one place. Um, so the first, the first story of this series, we're going to play a little bit from that. I would call this a very, very basic investigative structure. Um, it's the tour structure. So I went to a prison and it doesn't have to be a prison. It could be a nursing home. It could be a national park. It could be a toxic waste dump. It could be a, a grain mill on a farm. It could be anything. But it's the tour structure. And I literally started this story walking into the prison, doors opening and closing. I, I, you know, after so many years of doing criminal justice, I can't. I, it is my goal now not to put prison doors in stories. Um, there was a time when I was like, oh, great door. And now I was like, I can't put another prison door in a story. Um, and I literally ended the story with me walking out of the prison. And I was like, we're just going to go on a tour. And so we go through this thing at Pelican Bay. And let me give you just a sample of what I'm talking about. Just sort of prison says he's watched a lot of his neighbors lose their grip on reality. When that happens, there's another part of the prison for them, the psychiatric shoe. So we're going from the main prison, psychiatric shoe. In the psychiatric shoe, one inmate is standing in the middle of his cell, hollering at no one. Another is banging his head against the cell door. The psychiatric shoe is full, all 128 beds. One out of every ten inmates in segregation is housed here in the psychiatric unit. There's even a waiting list. Here, many of the inmates are naked. Some are exposing themselves. The extent of the psychological problems here is laid out on a marker board outside the unit. Lieutenant Steve Perez points to the inmates' names. So here we are here with Vic, level two, indecent exposure. He's got to be in a jumpsuit. Nichols. He's on a razor restriction. This guy. Okay, so I'm, you know, I'm walking through the prison. We went from the main prison to the psychiatric part of the prison. I'm with the, the press guy who's giving me the tour, you know, and he's pointing to a board and he's saying, here is the guy yelling. You have all this sound, right? Okay, and so I'm, I'm just sort of taking you through the issues of what happens in, in a solitary confinement prison, but I'm not really driving forward at any point in this story to what to the point that I want to bring forward about this prison policy that is failing. And I'm just saying, we're going to hang out here, but I'm not saying, let me move this story. Let me use these stops along the way to move you forward to understand that this prison policy is failing. So, um, you know, for, for me, what you always want to keep in mind is forward storytelling. Like, Point A to point B, where are you bringing people? And I, I, you know, I wasn't sort of doing that, but it was interesting. It was like, okay, so we're going we're gonna to go on through. Um, I, I couldn't conceptualize at that time that there was a greater picture that I needed to see when I went out and stepped into this prison. So when I actually stepped into the moment where this prison policy's failure was most symbolized, I couldn't see it, you know? And also, it made me uncomfortable. So let me tell you, play some tape here of me. Just literally 
your series moment blowing right by you. So we walk, this is still in the psychiatric ward, and uh, when you're in this psychiatric ward, there was this, they, everybody in, in solitary confinement, because this is the policy that's not really working, they go crazy. And these guys had been in these cells for, in some cases, you know, 18, 20 years, and they hadn't talked to anybody, they hadn't touched anybody, whatever. And they go a little nuts, right? So they end up in the psychiatric ward. And in the psychiatric ward, the state says that they provide therapy to help people uh, regain uh, a sense of uh, personhood, and then they release them to the public. Ninety-seven percent of these guys will walk out the door and join society. So they are sitting in this these, this this group therapy is like a bunch of phone booth-sized cages, and then there's a guy sitting in one of the cages. Lieutenant Troy Wood works in the psychiatric shoe. He says they treat mental illness by monitoring the inmates and sending them to what he and others call group therapy. This is how the PSU inmates receive their group therapy. Okay, each put in one of the holding cells. There's a seat in there and this and that. In a small room, there are six metal cages the size of phone booths facing each other. There is one inmate locked inside, listening to a boombox. Depending on what the group is, you know, they'll either listen to music, watch movies, play games, uh, have art, uh, current events, um, a lot of different types of groups. So this is this is group going on right now? Yeah, this is this is this what is actually music group right now. Do you guys hear that? This inmate wait, 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 listen to that, that again, listen to that again. Listen to my I don't want even on mic. Music group right now. Yeah, wait, there's my question right this there. This inmate replied. Yeah, this is this is this what is actually. Do you hear that laugh? Right Can you hear how uncomfortable I am? Here's like the. This is the moment of my story. That this is this whole policy has come down to some guy sitting in a cage and he's listening to music, but this is actually some sort of reading group or whatever the hell's going on. And I'm like, this is music group right now. <laughs> like I can't even embrace this situation that's happening and then literally the guy says yeah this is uh, actually a reading group and I go okay and then it's like on to the cafeteria you know and, and it just the whole thing just like blows right by you I would do this moment so different now you know this I would stop and be like this we need to have a whole interview right now in front of this and, and I, I'm going to hold you to the, to the fire about whether or not this situation is working for the public, for them, for you, for everybody. Um, it took me a long time to get to a place where I felt comfortable sort of engaging in these conversations with people um, and, and rec- not only recognizing them when they were happening, but actually feeling like if I'm thinking in my head that this is sort of uncomfortable and weird, that that's the moment to stop and say, I need, to, I need to formulate a question. I need to think outside of this moment and into the story and think about how does this moment relate to that. And I don't know if that just came with doing it over and over again or sitting in more and more uncomfortable situations or getting older or just kind of you know, feeling like that, that there was, that, that I had a sense of, of the world in some way. I, I don't know sort of where it, it started, but it, it has built over time. So the next, so over the, then a couple years sort of passed, and uh, uh, I kept sort of at this idea, 
you know, of trying to figure out these story structures because these stories are going to rise and fall on structure. Your story is either going to be a complicated mess of like a kitchen sink of, of information where you just threw everything in and you hope that people are going to like sort through it for you. Or they can also be too simple where you haven't put in enough like complexity to really hold people throughout the whole 20 minutes or however long you get eight minutes or whatever, an hour on the radio. Um, so the next time I, I sort of approached this tour, the idea of the tour structure, I knew that I was going to do it differently. I wanted to do a story about bail bonding in the United States, and I wanted to uh, take a look at the fact that there were 600,000 inmates at any, on any given day sitting in jails in the United States, not because they were guilty or because they were a threat to society, but because they couldn't make their bail. They couldn't afford to make their bail, and that this was costing taxpayers $8 billion a year. And it was a system largely set up by the bail bonding industry. So it was like, this thing is happening, and you need to explain to the listener why is this happening and who is responsible. So I thought again about how I wanted to do this story through the eyes of a jail in a small town that was overflowing and it was costing a fortune and they were building a whole new jail down the road. And so I went to Lubbock, Texas, and I thought about how this time I was going to use this tour structure as a vehicle to talk about a national problem so that I knew before I even walked into the Lubbock jail that when I saw uh, inmates that were overcrowded that I was going to capture that sound and use it to talk about how this is happening in jails all across America. And when I interviewed inmates, I was going to use those as an example to talk about this greater problem. I was, it was going to become a vehicle. It was going to become a character in my story rather than just me along for the ride to do a little prison tour. This was also how I was going to interweave what I call the vegetables, right? All the numbers and the stats and maybe a quote from a document or some internal emails or whatever that you have to get the, into the listener, but you want them to go down easy. So you kind of like throw them in between like interesting scenes. And, and, you know, it's not just Lubbock, Texas. It's everywhere, you know, 80% of jails nationwide blank. Like you, you kind of just, and you kind of, you just sort of bury the vegetables and all the good juicy stuff. Um, so I knew I was going to do that. And then I also sort of stopped and thought, but what would make this like awesome? What would make this really good? And this is before I even left my desk. And I always tell people that it is really important to just dream big. Like, sit down and be like, if I could just dream up, like, the most awesome story about bail of all time, what would happen in it? And you're never going to get that. That's never going to happen in a million years. But you're going to get something like it, and your brain's going to be more open to it when you actually stumble across it. So in this case, I was like, you know what? I want to follow a couple inmates through this process. I want to find some guys who couldn't make really low bail and are stuck in prison for months and then find out how their lives get all screwed up. And that layer that you're going to put on top of it is called narrative. And that is what makes these stories sing. That is what makes people cry. That is what makes people care. That is how you start with the story and you end up and people come all the way to the end and they are like, I fully inhabit and understand exactly what it is you are trying to tell me about this issue. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. So we'll take a listen to how, how that happened. 
Through lunch today, it has cost oh, seven thousand sixty-eight dollars. issue. Okay, so I found this guy named Leslie Chu, and I had to interview a whole bunch of inmates just to find this guy, right? And um, that's a whole other panel about prison access and how to handle all that stuff. But um, I had to go through a number of inmates. I ended up spending the whole day, always ask for two days when you go to prison. I spent the whole day and, and went through a number of inmates and found three that I loved. And one of them was Leslie Chu and he couldn't read or write and he grew up on the oil rigs and, and that was, and he lived out of a, a, a Subaru car. It was his only possession. It was the only thing that mattered to him. Um, and so I started interviewing him. He had stolen three blankets from a grocery store, three or four blankets from a grocery store. And his bail, he needed to come up with $350. And he had been in prison for like, in jail for like three or four months at this point. Dollars to house, clothe, and feed Leslie Chu. Man, that's a lot of money. <laughs> that's really too much money, really. Nationwide, taxpayers spent $9 billion last year on people who have been granted bail but can't come up with the money to pay it. And each year, that number increases as the nation's jails overflow with petty offenders counties have no room to house and budgets they can no longer afford. Chu is sitting at a metal table in the middle of the room. The calluses on his hands are leaving marks on the painted steel. He says he's worried that his customers, the people who hire him to fix things, move things, and pick things up, are turning to someone else. And he's worried about his car. It's a 87 station wagon Saturn. It's white with tinted windows. I was going to get a regular car, but I figured a station wagon would be better because if I ever get in a bike, I can lay down in the back seat to have a place to sleep. I can feel Chu's feet begin to tap under the table. If I lose that car, that's it. I don't know what I would do. That's how I get around me. Chu doesn't know it now as he sits at this table waiting for lunch, but he's going to lose his customers, and he's going to lose his car. And across this barren room of orange jumpsuits, most of Chu's fellow inmates aren't going to fare much better. See what I did there? Belanger says he doesn't. You know, I was like, you want to know what's going to happen to Leslie Chu, right? Right? You're going to have to wait 16 more minutes to find out. Like, on top of all of that, I was like, I'm going to hold you in this moment. I'm going to tell you that I know how this story ends, but you're going to have to wait to, with me all the way to the end, all the way through the vegetables to find out how this story is going to end. Now, this tour structure, you don't have to stay in the jail. You just have, you know, I went across the street and talked to the bail bondsman, and I used this interview where he basically was like, I pay off county officials all the time. Um, and, and then I went from there with the sheriff down the street to where they're building a whole new $100 million jail. Like, you can, you can come out of the jail, but you have to stay in story, you know? And then at the end, I came back to the jail where Leslie Shu was then gone, and then he went missing, and then no one ever heard from him again. It was very sad, actually. But... Um, once, the point of it is that you have to stay on the road that you have chosen, and you have to stay on target while at the same time not breaking narrative. So when I attempted this later on, this is a story about um, the, the number of, um, the extraordinarily high number of, foster, of Native American foster children in uh, white foster homes in South Dakota and how the state has a financial incentive to put kids in white foster homes and um, how this was destroying the tribes. And it's also uh, against federal law. So this 
So this story was one of the most complicated structures that I had attempted. There wasn't a tour in this story. This was simply a narrative. I was going to take the story of one grandmother losing her grandchildren, and I was going to weave in the stories of the idea that this was happening to thousands of other people, thousands of other children, and move through this sort of concept that it was you know, the state had a responsibility here that they uh, were not finding proper foster homes, that this was a violation of federal law, and then also that the federal government had a, a, a role that it was playing. So the narrative vehicle of this story was the grandmother and her grandchildren. However, you can leave that, that storyline and you can go all the way to Washington, D.C., as long as it comes up naturally. You know, at this point, at one point in the story, it was like, well, why isn't the federal government stepping in to help these families? So let's go to D.C. and ask somebody that's, you know, ask the head of, uh, I think we asked the head of uh, Health and Human Services, why are you not helping? And then you come back from D.C. right back into the story because you haven't broken narrative. You're still in your narrative voice. You're just answering a question that came up. What you cannot do and what I fundamentally believe, and I will rail on this to the cows come home, you cannot go to an expert. You cannot go to Professor So-and-so in his office, in her office, who's going to tell you what I like to always call these tape cuts. See, I told you I'm right. So you've got, you know, I'm, so I'm in South Dakota, and I'm going to step out of my story, and I'm going to go to some professor in Wyoming who says... Yeah, there's a lot of Native kids that are being pulled out of their homes and sent to white foster care, and it's really hurting Native families. The only thing that that story, that that tape cut does, is makes the reporter feel better that they're not standing out there on a limb all by themselves. It has no place in these stories. You have already interviewed, after your months on these stories, 12 of the top professors in the country on this topic. You have read all the research of every advocate under the sun. You have done all of that work on background, like without it being on tape. You are the expert of this story. There is nobody who knows this topic and this particular situation and what is happening in South Dakota better than you. If you put an expert in your story, in your investigative story, you have failed. There's no reason to do it. Now, I, I, you know, it's hard sometimes because they want to be on tape and you've talked to them for an hour and they turned over their thesis on the whatever and you read that whole thing and loved it and thought it was amazing. And, that, and, and you have to really break it to them that they're not going to be in the story. But you thank them profusely and you say, but the issue is going to be in the story. It's at least going to get some attention. And also, don't interview them on tape. Interview them over the phone. If you go out there and you sit down in somebody's office with a microphone, you've really taken up their time and you're going to feel bad about it afterwards. Like, man, I just spent two hours with him and totally mic'd him, and now he thinks he's going to be in the story. I have to tell him he's not going to be in the story. I learned that the hard way. I used to interview a lot of experts and just like, well, I want the tape so I can have it. You know, if you need to, like, phone tape them, don't even, don't even let them know, like, you know, that you're interviewed. You know, don't do it as, like, an interview. Tape it just for notes or whatever. Um, so the other half of this, those are some of the, the sort of structures that you can work with. The other half of this is just, like, fantastic radio moments. 
um, which is what you can do in radio that you can't do in print. They're like they're the most amazing stories that you can read in print. They do not come to life the way they do on radio. You are in people's heads. You are bringing people and voices into people's heads in this remarkable way that just I mean it like literally makes my heart sing. And it's so far beyond what other mediums can do. And these are the moments that everybody remembers when they sort of think about your stories. Um, the most important thing that you're going to be doing is holding somebody's feet to account, the little people and the big people. You're going to be taking down the arguments of why this policy is in place and should be in place or why people think it might even be a good idea, and you're going to break down those arguments every step of the way, and you're going to be holding those people to account in the interviews while you're on tape. Don't, you got to embrace it. You just got to own it. You got to know that your job is to be on tape asking these questions. I, I used to really be afraid of sort of inserting myself in the stories, and then I realized how powerful it was when you just get in there and, and, and do it. So when I was in South Dakota on this native foster care story, along the way, the, the, our grandmother, one of the things you can do is go to your Indian Child Welfare Act officer, and they are supposed to help you. They're BIA employees, and they're supposed to help you, you know, keep your grandkids with your family or find other relatives when the kids have to be removed from their families. And um, this grandmother had gone to her BIA officer. And I really thought when I went to his cinder block office in the middle of nowhere in South Dakota that he was going to be kind of like a maybe a middle ground hero in the story, that he was going to sit down and be like, yeah, like there's only so much I can do. My hands are really tied here. It's a really systemic problem. I thought it was going to be one of those explainer people saying, you know, even I can't help. I'm trying, but I can't help, you know. And, and that, it's like a good guy, but he's, you know, he can't really do much. <clears throat> and I got, oh, my God. I was with my producer, Amy Walters, and I. We went, we jumped through hoops you wouldn't even believe to just to, like, get this interview with this guy. And I sat, we drove hours to this place. And I sat down with this guy, and I was like, Oh my God, this is the worst tape I have ever heard in my, this, I can't even use this tape. I, what am I supposed to do with this guy who can't talk? I can't believe we drove all the way out here. Now we're going to drive six more hours to some other ICWA officer at the Rosebud Reservation because I can't use this guy's tape. He's so bad. And then I was literally in the interview thinking, this really sucks. And then I started thinking, God, this really sucks if like, You've got grandkids, and you got to depend on this guy to help you out. And then I was like, this really sucks if you have grandkids, and you got to depend on this guy to help you out. So, so that's when I started asking him very different questions. And this tape cut, which at the time I thought was the worst piece of tape I'd ever collected, suddenly became my absolutely favorite tape cut of all time. Valandra says he doesn't need to because the Indian Child Welfare Act is being followed. The state does have Native American foster homes, so uh, yeah, it's, it's working. But state records show only 13% of Native kids in foster care are placed in Native homes. In fact, Valandra admits that not one of the children in his almost three dozen cases is placed with a Native American family. So I asked him, do you feel like maybe these children are, have been let down a little bit? Of my cases, I think they're all, right now, how do I want to? <laughs> the 
placement of the children right now are are uh, boy, that's <laughs> with Philandra a dead end. Janice Howe asked to have the kids moved to a native home. I mean, you know, talking about leaving in the pauses, you know. Um, and that moment in that in that story sort of symbolized how unbelievably screwed these families are. You know that this guy, federal employee, he can't. There's not no no help is coming, um, and there's just no way you couldn't you couldn't write that out and put that in a print story. That wouldn't make any sense. It would just be like what that. But you hear that and you fundamentally understand how broken this whole system is. Um, Earlier on, uh, when I had, I had been doing a story about the rape of Native American women, um, it was the first time that I really embraced this idea that I should ask somebody the question on tape that matters the most in this story. And it was the first time I had, I, I, I had thought about it in advance before I got into the interview. Because we were out on a reservation, and uh, one in three Native American women will be raped in her lifetime. Um, that's your sort of baseline. That's what my story is about. You should always be able to sum your story up in a sentence. You can spend nine months from that sentence figuring out the best way to tell that sentence and explain that sentence and find out why it's happening and who's responsible. But you have to have your sentence. If you're six months into an investigation and you don't know what your sentence is, you know, you're, peace out, you're done. Like, time to cut and run, pack that thing up, put five minutes on the air, and move on. Because your sentence is your starting point. So, and you, you know, like, there's an absurdly high number of Native American kids in, foster, in white foster care. Okay, that's your story. You know, it should just, you know, one in three Native American women are going to be raped in her lifetime. Okay. Like, you know, uh, 600,000 people are sitting in jail every day, and it's costing taxpayers, you know, $9 billion. Okay. Like these, it's just it's a simple sentence. This is the, this is what you're trying to to impart to people, and you're going to try to do it in the most moving and, and careful way possible. When you want it in the Native American rape story, <clears throat> that was my sentence, and we, you know, the person. Why is this happening? Was really that the, 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 the at the end of the day, the culprit was really the federal government for failing to prosecute crimes on reservations. So it became sort of a free for all. But in the middle ground, there was again a BIA. They really will not let me interview anybody anymore. Um, it was a BIA officer who was in charge of law enforcement on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation. And I knew that I was using a narrative structure. I was going to follow the wo- this woman, Leslie Ironroad, who was, who was raped and she died of her injuries. And uh, she literally was murdered and no federal agency, nobody took notice of this woman's death. She was simply buried. And I was going to follow what happened to her case while interweaving the vegetables, talking about this national problem, and showing how fundamentally flawed the whole, broken the whole system is along the way. So, uh, same sort of story structure as the foster care story. So, but this is the first time that I had had actually thought about it, and I thought, you know, I really need to interview the head of the law enforcement on this reservation to find out why her case wasn't investigated and prosecuted, and I need to get him to sit down and talk to me about it. And um, I ended up 
finding out that she had reported her crime to a BIA officer whose name I even knew at that point. And I thought it would be really good to ask the head of law enforcement, why didn't you investigate this crime? It seems kind of obvious now, but at the time, I really was like, well, I'll try to do an interview, and then maybe months later when I sit down and put the story together, I'll bring up the idea that her case should have been investigated. And this was one of the first times I actually stopped and said, why don't I do that on tape? Why don't I ask this person in the interview, why wasn't her, her story investigated? So this is what happened in this one. Three. On Standing Rock, there's one person in charge of law enforcement, Gerald White. I consider any sexual assault a serious problem. I mean, and we don't take them lightly. White is the chief of the Bureau of Indian Affairs Police Department. It was one of his officers who was dispatched to Leslie Iron Road's hospital room. Every sexual assault that's reported to us we investigate to the fullest. So what about Leslie Iron Road? I looked back and there was nothing that I could substantiate. I'm sure she passed away, but her being as a, involved as a victim of a sexual assault, I couldn't find anything to support that happened here. A person doesn't report, then how can we investigate it if we don't know about it? She uh, told her story to a BIA officer while she was in the hospital. Again, like I said, I haven't found any report, you know, document to support that. There should be one. There was no investigation, but it wasn't because the police didn't know about it. Through records, interviews with officials at the hospital, state... Okay, so you throw in all your support. So it wasn't, you know, you, I don't know why I left in the uh, 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 and also, if you notice, it wasn't a question. It was actually just sort of a statement, which is... Yeah, you can do better. You can do better than that. Um, but it was really the first time where I thought, this could be a good moment. And it turned out that long pause where he's like, oh, fuck. You know, that, you know, it has this really power to it that that you can kind of sense there is a problem here. He didn't even, you know, he isn't even aware that this woman, or he's hiding the fact that this woman's case was brought forward to his police department and they didn't do anything about it and let it go. Um, and then it was really nice because after that interview, uh, they ended up reopening the investigation into Leslie Iron Road's case, which is always great if they do something like that before you go to air, because then you can put it at the bottom of your story and be like, look at this thing that happened at the end of the investigation. And it has this really nice moment for listeners where they're like, oh, thank God, like something happened, you know? Um, so that was, that, that was sort of the beginning of it. And then now when... You know, as years have gone by, and I think about these interviews now, um, the, I mean, they're kind of I mean, they're kind of fun. <laughs> you know, I just I feel like there isn't now. I, I'm I'm they know going in that you know that this is the the way it's going to be, um, and it's very important that you know you just sort of embody your story before you sit down that you know it that you know your facts and that you think about it in terms of the listener so like on the one hand you're thinking about the interview and then on the other side of your brain you're thinking about what is the listener asking right now what is the what is the public saying about this what are the how is this going to read to them and and trying to sort of move and adapt as it's happening and i think it was just literally like a matter of practice and and just doing it over and over again um so now, like, you know, when, I, when we sat down with the Red Cross, from, from the moment we sat down, I knew they were only going to give us an hour. They said they would only give us an hour. It took a month to even get an interview with them. And uh, 
and to allow the, uh, to do it on tape because they've been answering all the questions by email, which is totally unhelpful from a radio perspective. And um, and I, you know, from the moment we said I was, it was just, I mean, it was just on, you know. And they knew the drill, and we knew the drill. This was a little different because this is the head of a major, or this is the vice president of a major organization. You expect them to be a little more savvy than perhaps the BIA officer on a remote part of a rural reservation, um, but. You, it's, you know, now these interviews now, to me, it's, it, they're sort of like game on. And um, any fear that I may have had back in the days of solitary confinement, of standing in that awkward moment and thinking, I don't think this is right. This doesn't feel right to me. I don't know if they should be doing this to these people or whatever. They're gone. And I think that that is the heart of being an investigative reporter is sort of being the person that is asking the questions that is able to sit in that moment of tension and just let it be, you know, to sit in that pause and let it be, don't talk, just let that pause happen, to not be afraid of the silence and to not be afraid of the anger and animosity that you get back for asking people the hard questions. Um, And then you get to go back and you get to put the whole puzzle together. Um, So... If there, if there are questions, please come forward and ask questions. Um, otherwise, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, how different it was in the Red Cross. Um, the, for, the, for me, when we went to – let me actually play this tape of the Red Cross. Uh, wrong one. Wrong one. Um, here's like an example of – I'm going to jump forward. Uh, The Red Cross had been sending 40% of its emergency response vehicles during Sandy out to press conferences rather than out to help people in the New York and New Jersey area for a period of time. And we had this from a number of officials. And um, in the interview, you know, I just kind of knew ahead of time that he was going to dispute that this happened. And so you just want to be sort of ready and and prepared for for when that happens. In another incident, two top disaster officials say they were ordered to send large portions of their emergency response vehicles to press conferences. Forty percent of them were being used for backdrop. Richard Rickenberg was one of the officials in charge of the Red Cross's response to the hurricane. Rickenberg and a current Red Cross official who spoke to NPR on the condition of anonymity say they were furious. We're here to do mass care. That's what we do. And I'm not here to try and sway an election. I'm not here to try and get more money for the Red Cross. I'm not here to, to make sure we've got enough donors. I'm here to do mass care. So you're either going to let me do mass care or you're going to let me go home. Another current Red Cross official who also spoke on condition of anonymity recounted an event where model and Red Cross supporter Heidi Klum tied up a needed truck for almost an entire day and photographs online show multiple emergency response vehicles or IRVs sitting dormant behind press podiums for hours at a time. But the Red Cross's Trevor Reagan denies the vehicles were used that way. The number of 40 percent of the IRVs were, were redirected for press events is just simply untrue. So do you know what number is accurate? I, I don't know of an example where we took vehicles and moved it specifically for a press event away from service delivery. Okay, so then he says it's not true, and then you go to an example of it being true. You know? and, and in that one, you can hear that I'm like, okay, so what number is accurate? I mean, you're just totally in that moment. You know, he's saying, I can't think of a, you know, I, don't, I just don't think 40% is accurate. Okay, what number is accurate? 
And he says, none. We didn't do a single one, not a single one. And then where are you going to go in that story? You're going to go to like 12 examples of that happening. Um, you know, sometimes people say, why, you know, how can you, you know, this is very different from, you know, objective journalism because you're not giving both sides an equal say in these stories. Um, yeah, I've thought a lot about that over the years. You know, is this... Is this journalism with a point of view? Is this is, is this journalism that ha- that takes a side? Are you taking a side in these stories? And it's certainly different than say what you would do on um, you know all things considered, you would do uh, you would go to um, some professors or some advocates saying uh, a high number of Native American kids are uh, being put in white foster care, and this is this really sucks for Native American families. And then you would go to the state of South Dakota, and they would say, um, "No, we're doing everything we can, and we can't, and we can't um, find foster homes, and uh, uh, so that's the way it is." Laura Sullivan, NPR News. You know, you do three and a half minutes this side, that side, you know, up and out, and these stories are driving forward a perspective on an issue. They are. But I always, I always like to say that it's not that you aren't presenting both sides. You are presenting both sides. In this case, the Red Cross is saying, we, uh, we, don't, we don't have a single example where this happened. What I do not have an obligation to do, I have an obligation to present that their side. That is their side of it. It didn't happen. That's what they're saying. And I present that side. But what I do not have an obligation to do is allow a lie to stand unchallenged on our air. So when the Red Cross says um, that didn't happen, then I'm going to show multiple examples where it did happen. And then in doing that, you're taking the listener through the process of saying, I think there was a total breakdown here, actually. I'm beginning to understand that there may have been a total breakdown. And you're not saying to them, there was a total breakdown. Just take my word for it. They're coming to that conclusion because you are challenging the information that is presented. The state of South Dakota said, oh, we can't put these Native kids in uh, foster homes, in Native foster homes, because we just can't find any. And we can't find any Native families that are uh, qualified to take care of these kids. I mean, out of the... 50,000 Native families that are in our state. We can't find any. And uh, it's not our fault. We just can't. There aren't any Native foster homes we can put them in. And so after that statement, I went out and just interviewed two Native American foster families who had had empty homes for five years. And you don't have to say anything. You don't even have to say, I think, or this is, or I want you to go here. Just laying it out. You know, the state says, uh, we just don't have any Native. We can't do it. And then you say, but the, 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 I just heard two families that are wide open that really want kids. And then you're, you're, the listener's kind of saying, I don't know about this situation out there. This is sounding more and more messed up. And, you, and, and so by the time you get all the way to the end, they have come to this perspective, not of your position, but of something that is true. Because you have gone out and done that research and been boots on the ground for them along the way. Um, Seriously, you guys don't have any questions? <laughs> okay. You have to come to the microphone. You have to go to the microphone. Wow. <laughs> so you talked about um, having to work your way toward feeling comfortable asking the hard questions and being... So what do you do in your mind to get yourself prepared to ask the hard question and just sit there in the silence? 
You know that, that, that there's, a, there's an adage when, like, people who uh, don't want to get up and talk in front of an audience, and so they have to, they have to just kind of change the way they think about it and think, uh, I love an audience. This is exciting. All these people have to listen to me for an hour. Um, and you just sort of reconfigure your thinking. You have to reconfigure your thinking of that interview. Before, I was like, oh, God, like, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be mean. I'm, they're gonna think I'm terrible. This is. They're gonna walk out of the interview. They're gonna think that that I. You know, or they're gonna think I'm an idiot. And you just have to readjust your thinking and start saying, "This would be kind of fun." And I kind of want to know the answers to these questions. And I'm really curious: Are they gonna go this way? Or are they gonna go that way? Before the Red Cross, I was like, "Are they gonna go with the?" Um, yeah, we had a lot of problems, but we're working on it, which is always the way to go, by the way, if you're a public affairs person. <laughs> or are they going to go with, um, you know, screw you, this didn't happen. They went with screw you, this didn't happen. And so while it's happening in the interview, you're like, I can't believe they're, take- they're going this way. This is such a mistake. Like, do they see the train wreck that is happening in front of our eyes here? And they don't. And so it becomes this kind of, it becomes this kind of like entertaining challenge rather than this, I got to go face this guy. And also, you got to just, you know, most people don't walk out of interviews. You know, you got you to, it might happen. There might be a time when somebody's like, I'm not sitting through this anymore. South Dakota walked out of the interview. Um, you always are cordial. You're always polite. You know, you do the best you can to keep them there. But uh, if they walk out, they walk out. And that is a mistake for them. And it is not because you are a bad journalist and couldn't keep them in a room. It's not because you were unfriendly or unpolite. It's not any of those reasons. Um, And then also, sometimes when people, like, say outrageous things, it just elicits amazing amazing tape. When I was with producer Amy Walters on a a non-investigative story, we were in a prison and we were interviewing the warden, and I had kind of made it through the whole process. And sometimes it's really great when you work with producers because you can kind of do the like, I know, I know. I mean, she's like insane. I really apologize, but don't worry. Like, just talk to me. And then you can just, you know, you kind of do like this bad cop, good cop routine. And I remember Amy looking at this warden at the end of this interview, which was just crazy, and it was just totally off the rails. And um, and I was, I kind of looked at Amy. I was like, yeah, I think we're, are we good? I think we're good. And she's like, you know, actually, I kind of, I got a question. And she looks at this warden who had just like allowed us into this prison, and she goes, so do you like think you're God? And I was like, oh my God, we're never coming back. We're supposed to be back tomorrow. They're never going to let us back in. And uh, honestly, God, it was the best tape because he looked and he goes, you know, honestly, actually, I do. And I was like, holy shit, you know? So sometimes when you just start seeing it happen, you realize that, like, sometimes it's really good tape, too, even when you piss people off. <laughs> Thanks. Hi. Um, so two, two questions. One's really small. When you're, do you mic yourself, or do you, you know, go back, and, do you remember in the heat of the moment to go back and forth? And then also, are there times where you failed, where you started on a trail, and then you get into it months down the road, and you're like, oh, no, this isn't going to work? This is a terrible story. Yeah. Yeah, um, Can you give an example? Yeah, I'm trying to think of one of my better fails. Um, I did, I investigated for a long time a small story um, in South Dakota that was really interesting, but really belonged on the front page of the you know, the Sioux Falls Herald or whatever. And it just didn't, it didn't have a national, it was a really 
interesting story and it was really important to that area, but it was not it was not a national story it, and it wouldn't translate. I was like, would I be doing this story if it was happening in Kansas? Would I be doing this story? And you'd kind of think, well, what's the, what's the bigger thing? And I spent way, way, way too much time on that story. Um, so that was, that was kind of a one that was hard. So what happens? You're saying you do sometimes sort of quote unquote fail. Oh, all the time. I'd say, I'd say, I mean, I'd say half the, the ideas that I sort of come up with go nowhere and you've spent weeks kind of puttering around and pecking away at them and they just don't develop into anything um you know I always say like never tell your I never be like to your editor I need nine months you always say four to six weeks all right you're just like I need four to six weeks and they're like okay fine four to six weeks and at the end of four to six weeks if you're just like I don't know where this is going I'm not really into this or I'm bored I bored myself out of a story I bored myself out of a uh, story um uh on gun ownership or it was like a story on I can't even remember. It was so boring. Um, where I was going to do a story about how guns get into the hands of whatever, and I probably spent six weeks. Like, and I did some interviews, like in New York, on it, and and then I finally was like, I can't even bring myself to do the research on this. Like, done. You know, you got to cut and run on that. Um, it's nice if you have an editor that lets you do fishing expeditions. I've had editors that do. I've had editors that don't. It just depends. Um, and uh, I, yeah, I just think that. If you are, if your heart's in it, you're going to have a good story. And so you're looking for something that you actually care about. You know, I always say, like, you know, you, it's hard to find story ideas. That's the hardest part, honestly, is, th- is coming across that, that sentence, you know. And I always say that the, the best way to do it is to look out into the world and ask yourself, like, what upsets me about the world? You know, what upsets me about something that I'm seeing? And then keeping your eyes open as you're doing your normal reporting on stories that aren't long and, and hearing different things that people are telling you and saying, that sounds kind of screwed up. I wonder if there's something there. Um, the hardest thing to do is sit at your desk and think that you're going to come up with an investigative story. If you sit at your desk, you are going to end up investigating nursing homes. Like, you're going to pick this, like, dull, low-hanging fruit, the fruit that everybody's already done, you know, or you're going to sit there and you're, you're going to come up with, I'm going to investigate defense spending. I mean, it's like, that's, that's the kind of stuff. But if you get out there in the world and you talk to people who are passionate about things or they're advocates or they're this or they're that, and you listen to them, sometimes you can say, yeah, you know what? I wonder if there's really something there. Cause that sounds kind of screwed up. And that's, I think where the best ideas come from. And the mic. Oh uh, yeah. I always mic myself either if I have, if I'm lucky enough to get to have a producer, then I will just sit there with the mic, and they will handle the other people. Um, and then, otherwise, I'll do a lavalier, usually, yeah, the, the little like shirt mic. Yeah, I didn't always though. I used to try to do this. It's hard. I just wanted to ask you about your your tactics for obtaining interviews. Yeah. Um, something I think, I think is intimidating is like. When you're doing a story like this and you're calling around. Do you want the magic word? Yes. I'm totally yes. serious. I'm going to tell you guys the magic word. Um, I don't know why this works, but it always does. I don't know. I can't explain it. When you call somebody up and you're like, I need this interview, or I need this person to talk to me, I need this information, and they're like, I don't know, I don't really want to be on the air, or I don't want this part of this, sounds like a negative story, I don't want any part of this, or I think they're getting in trouble, or I don't know if I can give you this information. <clears throat> you say, look. I really need your help. I don't know. I don't know why it works. It just does. And all of a sudden, it like disarm. It like the whole conversation shifts. It like disarms people, and they're no longer sitting there thinking, 
oh, I don't know if I want to be in a story like this, or I don't know if I want this person to know the information that I know, or I don't know if I want to do the interview. All of a sudden, they it shifts, and they start saying, well, there is a problem out there, and this person needs my help, and I could probably help them out. So that's a that's a tactic you would use with like the Red Cross, and then if you do it, do you do you come at them and say, "Look, I think you guys really screwed this up," or do you say, "Ah, uh, you know, I've heard, I'm trying to figure this out." I mean, how much do you sort of upfront? Okay, you, know? you can't. Yeah. So this is so critical. You cannot say that you are going to go that you are calling them and you need access or a tour or whatever because you're doing a feature on the prison's uh, basket weaving class for inmates and then you come out of there and you're doing a, a story about uh, prison conditions you cannot do that you are your credibility you are, that is all you have in this business you have to own it um at the same time, if you walk in there and say, look, I'm investigating the fact that I actually know a reporter who always took this tact, and he was pretty successful at it too, but he, and say, look, I'm investigating you for blank, and now, by the way, can I come have a tour? They're going to be like, no, you can't. Um, so you kind of, you want to, it's a fine line. You cannot lie. You cannot lie. And the moment your story becomes hostile, you have to let them know that. You know, you don't want them listening to a story. The last thing you want is for anybody in the story to listen to the story on the air and be like, holy cow, this reporter just screwed me. I thought they were doing a story about this, and that is what I just heard, is me getting screwed. Um, with the Red Cross, you know, they knew from the very beginning that this was the story that we were working on. I mean, it started off, it was always very cordial and polite, all the emails, um, but it started off saying, we are looking into the issue of how you responded to Sandy and Isaac. That is honest. We are looking into the, I am looking into this issue. I am looking into the issue of solitary confinement. Can I come take a look at your prison? You know, you don't have to go farther than that, but you have to say, I'm looking into this issue. And then as your story progresses, if your story does go down a road where you're saying, I think this whole policy screwed up, or I think the Red Cross uh, may have botched their response to Sandy, you need to let them know that. So and when we were trying to get the Red Cross on tape, which you know, it's funny, Jesse and, and Justin were like, well, we got their emails, we have their statement. I was like, that is like, that, that, you might as well have nothing for me. Like, that is, I can't do that. It doesn't matter to me what they send on email or whatever. So I said to, um, I said to the Red Cross, we had a long conversation, and I said, look, um, you know the story that we're doing. You know all the things that we're looking at. You, you have seen all of our emails explaining that we're looking at the 40% of vehicles, we're looking at the 80 empty trucks, we're looking at this, we have, t we have four of your own top officials, and we have multiple internal documents from your own organization. You know that this is a story we're doing, and I really want you to do this interview on tape. And she was like, I, that, no. She's like, I'm not putting one of my people in front of you for like a firing squad of stuff. And I said, here's, here's the problem. I said, it is, I said, for me, obviously, as a radio journalist, it is better for me to have you on tape. I need the tape in my story. That, I'm not going to lie to you. You and I both know that's true. I have an, my own personal incentive is to have you on tape in my story. I said, however, it is also better for you to be on tape in this story because you're gonna, we are going to address all the things that you know about. But if you present me a statement, I will be reading that statement on air. It is going to sound flat, it is going to fall flat, and it is not going to resonate with listeners when compared to the voices of people out there saying that you guys, you know, had some trouble in this hurricane. If you do the interview, you can at least own your position. And she said, okay. And I, I actually believe that they came across better because they did the interview.
they shouldn't own their mistakes, but that's, you know, that's their call. I'm wondering about um, international situations, if you're doing this type of reporting where perhaps the cultural norms of interacting are different, perhaps uh, your safety might be more of an issue or in question uh, and access is different. I, I'm just wondering how you advise kind of navigating situations where y you may feel a little bit out of your zone for so I've never, I have not done war reporting, so I haven't done that. Um, I think that there are communities in, in the United States where you feel out of your zone. I mean, certainly Native American reservations were really difficult. Um, I always like the process of finding one person, you know, building that trust with one person and having them introduce you to five other people, and then those people introduce you to other people. I mean, that's the only way that we got the story uh, of the rape of Native American women, because it was so closed off, and it was such a silent issue and we were just a bunch of outsiders coming in and I mean I, re I remember sitting on a couch we had all these interviews planned and all of them fell through which was just because we were outsiders I mean it was just a very different process you know I, I when I started that story I thought people said you know it's different it's going to be different when you go to a reservation because it's really insular and they're not going to trust you and blah 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 and so I I remember I set up an interview with the chief of this one reservation uh, on the phone and I was like, well, how hard was that? Look, we're gonna. I said, okay, I'll fly out there. We're gonna do this story. We'll do this interview at three o'clock. And I was like, whatever. This is whatever. That wasn't hard at all. And I showed up at his office, and we sat there for an hour. And uh, finally, I asked the secretary. I said, do you think that uh, uh, it was Chairman His Horse's Thunder? I said, do you think that His Horse's Thunder is is he really? Like, there was nobody there. It was like vacant, and not a single person was coming out. I was like, is he really busy right now? Is he in a conference? And she goes, oh, the chairman? Um, no, he's not even here. And I said, uh, he's not even here. We had an interview with him. And she was like, and I said, well, where is he? And he, she said, he's out, he's out on his ranch. And I said, well, where's that? And she's like, you're never going to find it. I mean, it was just such a different thing. And honestly, at the end of the week, when we figured we had inter we had finally started meeting people through a shelter and then talking to all these other people and before you knew it we had met 50 people you know and had done this and all of them knew the chairman whatever that when we finally went to his house a woman drove us out there and said I'll show you where he lives he lives out on this rural road and you can't you know it's not like a gps thing and took us out to his house he literally came out of the house and he said hello i've been waiting for you I mean, it was like you have to go through this process sometimes of just figuring out how things operate in a different community and, and putting in the time. You just got to put in the time. Yeah. Hi, a couple quick things. First, uh, thanks for sharing this work. It's really strong. Um, two things. One, do you have any techniques for trying to break up long blocks of copy? I find in investigative pieces or pieces where there's a lot of history that you can't all just park in the intro. You have these long copy blocks, and it's always a, a challenge to figure out how to, how to deal with that so that you're not going on and on. Secondly, um, I find in, with teaching students I teach at USC, uh, to try to get them to find someone who's representative of the issue uh, is always a challenge because they have to be articulate, they have to be representative. Do you have any techniques yourself when you go out there, like, what are you looking for in finding someone who's yeah. representative? See, I don't even need them to be articulate as much as I need them to be moving. 
I just, I need their story to be moving. Sometimes even if they're inarticulate, that's part of the story. It's part of the problem, you know? Um, I just, I want them, I want the story that is, um, has some twists and turns, but is also just like the kind of story that when you hear it, you're like, ay, 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 like this makes me personally upset that this person has gone through this. That makes the best anecdotes. Um, you know, you want to be careful you don't cherry-pick anecdotes and put your hand on the lever of the story. You know, you want to pick something that feels kind of average, like in the norm, but something with somebody who, you know, where you can take the story from one place to the next to the next and follow them through. What was the, was the first question? Against blocks what? Oh, blocks of copy. Oh, this is a nightmare for me, too. Um, it's so easy to write them because you want to just, you just want to get the, veg- you just want to throw up the vegetables and get past them, and the best thing you can do is hold off some of that information and pluck it into the scenes. You know, when you're standing in the 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 the, uh, the empty pods that the Bergen County guy is saying, that's where you bring in the idea that the Red Cross, like, did this in multiple counties or failed to show up or, you know, didn't provide the resources necessary. And, and even though you want to say that high up, you just got to kind of hold it till the end because otherwise people are just like, well, that. You know, I but I'm the, I I write a lot of long copy blocks, and then I see them, and I'm like, what is this? I used to have an editor, Ellen Weiss at NPR, when I first came over to radio from print, and she used to take my, I would come in with my script literally into her office, and she wouldn't even like hear it. She would look at it, and she would just literally go like this, come back, and because I had just written like an entire page without tape, she was like, don't even, we're not even reading this. Come back. <laughs> that that was process <laughs> hi 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 um so i was wondering especially with the two stories you did on the indian reservations have you ever burned any bridges where people are just like i am never giving you another interview again yes um <clears throat> uh, i had a long i had a lot of problems with the atf for a while it's this is hard if you if you work a beat and you investigate them you may need to find a new beat. I mean, <laughs> if your beat depends on access to these people and they, they are the wielders of that access, you know, you just have to, uh, you just have to know that that's going to happen and choose whether or not it's worth it. It usually is, you know, and then you can kind of be like, look, I'm, I, I'm not going to come off this beat right away because I don't want them to think that they get to cherry pick reporters like that. I'm going to keep covering them for six months, but after that, I think I'd like to switch off for a little while. Um, I burned a bridge at Angola Prison in Louisiana uh, on a story that to this day I still am so sad I didn't get to do. Um, I was This is going to sound like a cliche, but it really it, it had a different twist to it. But it was a guy that was dying in prison. And um, I, was, I had been down to visit this guy, Leonard Hart, like two or three times. And it was kind of getting to the end where he was going to die. And it was a story about some whatever. It was good, I swear. And... Um, I loved this story. To this day, I love this story. And I was going to go to his funeral, and it was just all going to come together really nicely. While I was doing that story, I heard about these two guys who had been in solitary confinement for 36 years in Angola, which sounded to me like a really long time to be in solitary confinement. And uh, as I was down there a lot, it turned out that uh, they probably didn't commit the crime that put them in solitary confinement. And so I started working on that story. It was, it was about the Angola Three in um, Angola Prison. And, 
the warden said that if I did that story and if I continued to pursue it, that I would not be allowed back to do the Leonard Hart story that I'd already put in like a year, you know, not a, you know, visiting, but of time and my like, and I had to really stop and think about it. And he was like, if you interview these inmates, um, we will return them to solitary confinement and you will never be allowed back in this prison. You just have to make a hard choice. And I did. And so I did the Angola three story and then I lost the, I lost the Leonard Hart story, which is sad, but I think it, I, it was the right choice without question. It was the right choice because that was the story that they didn't want told for a very good reason because they had really, really fucked up. (laughs) And so, yeah, so I didn't get to do Leonard. So I got, I, I don't know if I get to go back to Angola. It's been a number of years. I haven't called in a while. I, you sort of just kind of avoid it for a while. You know, you'll just find another prison, a different avenue, a different place to go. Um, prisons are really tricky because they, you know, they are gods. They rule the world. You know, you don't, you get access at their discretion and they can boot you out really quickly. Hi. Um, I wondered if you had any strategies for um, dealing with numbers and data in your stories and how to sort of pick the right numbers and present them in a way that makes sense to listeners. Yeah, the brutal part about data on the radio is that you're going to spend like months putting together your database and it's going to boil down to one sentence in your story. Uh, you know, a uh, uh, an examination of all of these records found blank. One, you get one sentence. You're going to spend months trying to come up with the, this whole thing, and you get one sentence in the whole story. And, you know, it's like in print, you're going to get at least a few paragraphs analyzing and looking at and explaining how the data was come across and whatever. No, you get one sentence, and it's going to be brief. And it's going to be the only thing that actually matters from the data. And if you try to put more than one sentence, it's better to show it, not tell it. So you put the sentence in, and you come right out of that sentence with some sort of radio auditory example of why that sentence matters. Why is this happening? Who is responsible? So I have two quick questions. One, I think it was the, one of Ira's golden rules yesterday that if you say something shitty about someone, you have to let them respond. So I'm curious, do you let people listen to your stories before they air, or under what circumstances do you let them listen? And then my second one is, what is the fact-checking process? So um, you absolutely, uh, NPR's policy and uh, general journalism guideline is that you do not allow people to listen to your story prior to publication. Um, you just don't. Uh, you can't send them a copy of it. I mean, you do not send an email of your whole story to somebody for review. Ever, ever. How does NPR explain that? Because I have had people ask me that question, and that's our policy too. But what's the good way to articulate that to a person you've interviewed? I just say, I'm sorry, we do not um, allow pre-publication review of our work. Okay. I mean, you know, and, and I think for very good reason, because if you allow one person pre-publication review, then you have to allow everybody pre-publication review. And then all of a sudden, you've got 18 people that want to weigh in on your story and change it. And that is not what we do in journalism. We are not doing a consensus document. We are reporters. We are journalists. And it is our job to go find out what is happening in the world and why it's happening. And that is what the public trusts us to do. That is why we, that's why we signed up for the gig, you know, so that we can, we can 
research something and get out into the world and see what's happening and present it to the audience. And if we allow a panel of people to start saying, well, I don't like this and I don't like that, then then you're in a world of hurt, especially if you allow uh, the, the person that kind of looks like the hero in the story to do that, but you don't allow the person who looks like the responsible party to do that. Um, but that being said, uh, I do very carefully go over a lot of the facts with the people. I don't read them the story, but I will read, like, I will be like, okay, um, so I've got to, you know, I, and I will give them a sense of what the story is going to sound like. I don't like people to be surprised. Like, at the, you know, this part that involves you is going to walk through, like, your history. This happened. It's going to use some of the tape. That when we, Remember when I did that interview of you out on the whatever? I'm going to use some of the tape where you're saying something like this. Um, where, and then I'll, and I'll, sort of look at the facts before I go into the studio and I'll be like, and you are actually, you are 46, right? And you are from, and you live 30 miles outside of whatever. And you, and this conversation that you described happened in New York or New Jersey. Like, you know, that's one mistake I caught last minute when I was just doing that in the Red Cross story. Um, and, and I walk through like every sort of detail in there because the details will kill you. I mean, they will kill you on a story like this. There's a fantastic story in the New York Times. Um, it was an investigation into a company, and the reporter uh, ended up um, having to correct seven errors that were tiny. You know, the guy's office didn't overlook the lake. It overlooked the parking lot. It was on the, it's, you know, stupid, small errors. But the, by the time you collect seven of them, the, the New York Times had to do a correction that looked like this. And that's all that mattered in that story anymore, was that all these seven errors were made. And now you have a, a long list in the correction section, and everybody says, oh, I guess that story was all screwed up. And it wasn't. It was a really good story. So, yeah, those things, you'll get nickel and dime to death on these stories. Yeah. So that's what I do. I go through, like, line by line with the people involved. And the Red Cross was, knew everything before we even went into the interview of what we had. And I had to make an agreement with them, which was unusual, where I, pr- I promised them that I would not do, like, a television, like, um, so you're saying that you don't do this? Well, here, what about this? And hand them a document. She said that you have to, we wanted a verbal agreement that you will not present a document to us while recording it that we, have, that we are not aware that you have. And I said, all right, fine. We won't do the thing. All right. Hi. You made your position clear on manufacturing sound for uh, investigative reporting. How do you feel about the use of music? I don't have to, I, Music actually doesn't upset me. Because music is like a... Um, I mean, we can't do it on NPR, but um, I feel like some of the fantastic investigative stories uh, are, have music under them. But music is more of an emotional element rather than like a fact that you're inserting in the story. I mean, it can't, I mean if it's done wrong, it can feel manipulative. Um, but I don't, I don't put music in that category. Good. <laughs> <laughs> when you're going into those interviews, um, like the Red Cross interview or the um, Bureau of Indian Affairs interview, and you've got that one question, are you thinking about that one question the whole time, like you're leading up to it? Are you scheduling it at a certain point in your interview? Or are you leading up to the last because you know that might just shut everything down? I'm just wondering what your thought process yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. Well, I usually know the question before I even get on the plane because I'm thinking, what is it that I need to most ask this person? You know, what is it that represents the story the most? Um, and sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But, uh, but I, yeah, you always start the interview slow, you know, uh, easier, you know, softer, and then you start building up to the, the issues at hand. 
you know, you, you can always start with a softball, like, what's your take on this situation? You know, like, let them, let them go anywhere they want. Um, one of my pet peeves in question asking is the question, um, could you talk about that, oh, I hear, and I hear it all the time on the air, and I'm like, that is not a question. That is like saying to somebody, please uh, talk about anything in the world that you feel like saying without actually addressing anything that I'm here to talk to you about. I mean, it's like just handing them the platform away from you. It is not a question. That is not a question. Please, can you talk a little bit about? I mean, it's, oh. Oh, I hear that, and it just—it's like it's like knives in my in my brain. Um, but yeah, I usually start out kind of s- slower and smaller, and then build to where I'm going. But with that's it. not your last question. The question's not your last question. Is it? I know that we're closing in on the end. Okay. Yeah, just in case, because usually I want to get—I actually have some actual like I need to get some information as well. Okay. You know, like with the BI, I'm like I need to know actually how many officers do you have here, and how does it work here, and What's the process that you go through? And, uh, and then I say, let's talk about Leslie Einroad, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So bring it up after. Because you, you, you probably do have other stuff you need to know from this person. And then just a, just a quick follow-up when you were talking about the Angola story and the, the warden said, if you do this story, these guys are going to go back into solitary confinement. So what happened? Um, he said, well, he, in that particular case, he said that if I interviewed them or if he found out that I had interviewed them, that they would be put back in solitary. So, uh, that, that sucked because this was a story about whether or not they committed a murder of a prison guard 36 years earlier. And how do you do a story about two guys and whether or not they killed a prison guard 36 earlier, years earlier without asking them on tape, did you kill the prison guard 36 years ago? I mean, that's what the listener expects you to ask. That, that is your job. That's your is to ask them, and and listen to what what did they say? If they say no, how do you how do you know you prove you didn't do it? Tell me how you didn't do it. Like that is so critical. And the warden was like, you cannot interview them. Now they were in solitary, so but they had access to phones, and obviously I wasn't on their call list, but I knew people who were. So it was it could be easy for me to be one of those people and talk to them but uh he said that if i did that or if he found out that i had done that that they that they would get returned so i just said in the story that it was unclear whether or not i had talked to them and i just sort of left it at that forever thank you hi um you talked about how hard it is to continue to investigate when you're on a beat um and that's kind of like what my job is. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, like, how do you keep holding the same people accountable, like, month after month when they start to not return your calls? Right, especially if they hold access over your head. And you need them in your stories for your daily stories, which you actually do on a daily basis. And you need them to return your call and explain to you whatever you need to know. Um, it's very hard. Best case scenario, if you do an investigative story where you've hit them really hard, they know in advance that's happening. They are aware of the story. You have given them a fair shot, and if they are in any way like sophisticated and savvy, they will understand that that is your job. That is like a 10% chance of happening. The more likely chance is that they're going to be like, screw you, we don't deal with this reporter anymore. If that happens, you have to spend the next six months hitting them hard again. 
Like, you cannot back down from this battle. Once you're at the, in this war, you have to hold your ground because they cannot cherry-pick reporters. So if they're like, well, we're not going to deal with this reporter anymore, we're not going to help them out, yeah, your competitor may get something that you don't get, but you're going to keep reporting. And then the best-case scenario is that you become the reporter that is holding this agency, these people, to account, and all of a sudden, all these people are coming out of the woodwork telling you stuff about them, and so you can keep reporting it. Usually you end up getting to a neutral place where they realize it is not in their best interest to keep shutting you out and that it is better to work with you. Um, in some cases, it could get so hostile and you can get so freezed out that you just hang on for a while, several months, so it doesn't look like you're up and running. And then when you personally are like, I'm done, like this is not, this is, I'm, I want to do some better stories then you kind of might have to switch it up to another beat. But do you ever throw in, in between your investigations, like um, stories that, not like make them look good, but stories that are... Enterprise feature? Absolutely. Yeah. That's okay. how you manage a beat. I okay. mean, that's the only way you can do it. And if you're not, and, that, and then that's fair. I mean, that's good to them. I mean, if they are doing something that is quirky and interesting, you know, put a story on the air. And they will see that you're not just, you know, out to get them by the jugular and that can be super helpful and and it's great for beat building because you get to meet more people and talk to more people and always get cell phone numbers before you walk out the door always hi um sorry to ask a could you talk about non-question but can you talk about how how the collaboration with ProPublica just how that worked and do you have any advice for someone going into a collaboration with a print investigative reporter who's already done a significant amount of reporting, as I think sometimes happens with these collaborations. So I won't do a collaboration where I haven't done the, the, a significant part of the reporting. It has to at least be half. I mean, I won't. I, I just won't collaborate with somebody else's reporting. I don't know that reporting. I don't know what that is. Um, I'm not here to turn a print story into radio. Um, that's not have you done it when they have kind of like a lead, though? Like you, yeah, totally, yeah. absolutely. Um, so, so this is actually the Red Cross's lead. They came to to us and to, to me and said, "Do you want to do this with us? We have this lead. We have a sentence. We haven't. We don't know where we're, we have a sentence. We don't know where we're going with it." And I was like, "Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. Let's do that." So that was definitely their story idea. And uh, their and their they had a their their sentence was an initial document. So um, it was interesting. I mean, there are always ups and downs, but for the most part, it's like you feel like it's a, it's great because you're on a team and you're not solo. And then when the Red Cross calls you reprehensible, you're like, well, at least Jesse and Justin are reprehensible too, <laughs> you know. Um, so I know we're we're way past time, but um, I just want to leave you with a final thought, which is that. Uh, in the words of Spider-Man's uncle, that, um, you know, these stories are very powerful, and uh, with, with power comes great responsibility, so use it wisely. All right. Thank you. It was fun.